Welcome inside 254. Let's close the office door and start the conversation. Talk Around the Table today is about the rhetorical power of statues and monuments. So if you recall back to the fall of 2017, there was a whole brouhaha about (laughs) removing Confederate statues. But there's more to it than just Confederate statues. If you think about it, I know that there are, I believe, about 1,500 Confederate um, symbols in public places in America. I I read that in in one of these articles that I'm going to cite. But this goes beyond the Confederacy. It sort of lets more broadly look at the idea of statues and monuments, whether they're racist or not, whether they're demeaning or not, sort of the value. So, so like what work they do. Right, what work they do, what message do they have, what was the intent of the creator or the people who commissioned the work. So the idea is that rhetoric is the art of persuasion. Okay, so I think that's important for everybody to remember. Rhetoric is everywhere. No matter where you are right now, if you look around, even if you're only in your vehicle, your vehicle is sending you a message because the people who designed that vehicle want you to feel a certain way. So just as a very basic, you know, idea, um, you look at something like, and I know this is like, it feels like it's out of left field maybe, but it's not because I'm saying rhetoric is everywhere. So the art of persuasion is everywhere the room that you're in if you're in a doctor's office look around what does the room make you think what does it make you feel do you know that you're in a doctor's office are there things on the wall that suggest where you are the design of the seats is it meant to be comfortable in a college classroom think of how they're designed like concrete blocks stone walls bland paint uncomfortable chairs i mean that sends a certain <laughs> right that sends a certain message and my students when i ask them this they're like prison i'm like no not not quite but you know maybe depending on the age of the building right but i mean it's every everywhere you go places so rhetoric is not just words and images rhetoric is the art of persuasion using some kind of language so like a photograph could have is going to have a persuasive message a painting has a persuasive message because somebody created that image and there was intent behind it. And then there is the perception of the viewer or the audience of that message. You all are listening to us right now and what we are doing is rhetoric. We are trying to persuade you using our words for you to believe something. <laughs> you know, Using our logos, pathos, and, and ethos, ethos. right? <laughs> so when you think about statues, and monuments, right? Confederate statues, you know, a monument, a statue of Walt Disney, uh, um, one of the monuments like the Bears Ears National Monument that's being ripped apart by Trump in favor of coal and oil exploration. I mean, I, I think it's important for us to understand that these statues, monuments, and public places and items have messages, value, and emotional resonance for all of us and whether that's negative or whether that's positive or whether it's neutral or I just don't give a shit there's there's a, there's a message there and you're receiving it and so I, I thought I wanted to talk I want to do a little close slightly close reading of a of a monument <coughs> so this is that, stone mountain correct yeah, but first, which I had never heard of by right. the way until today so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna do a slightly close reading of um 
Stone Mountain, a basic rhetorical analysis of Stone Mountain, Georgia. And I want to encourage you to apply these kinds of tools, um, these analytical tools, to really any public space or a statue or monument that you see. Um, but first, I want to bring to your attention Laurent Dubois. I don't know if that's actually how he pronounced his name. It's French, so Dubois. It might be Dubois. You it never know. <laughs> but he is the director of uh, the Forum for Scholars and Publics at Duke University. So he's a professor. And he had tweeted out uh, it last August when all this discussion of Confederate monuments coming down. He had tweeted out this. Monuments are the public embodiment of social values and have to be recognized and transformed as society changes. So I thought that was a good sort of focal point to think about when you think about analyzing a problematic public monument or statue. So Stone Mountain, Georgia, if you've never been there, um, it's outside of Atlanta, and it really is, we'll say, a monument to the Confederacy. Uh, the family that owned the pro that owned I should say, originally owned the property of Stone Mountain, were associated with members of uh, the Ku Klux Klan. So the genesis of this monument, it is a relief image carved into the side of this mountain of Jefferson Davis, Robert E. Lee, and Stonewall Jackson. And for the record, it is bigger than Mount Rushmore. Oh like, my God, so are you serious? The size. Because I'm looking at an image of I it. I know, it doesn't. It, because usually you look at images. So if you look up Stone Mountain, Georgia, and you look at the relief image. Oh, I don't get it. I did not realize you, it's bigger than You Mount see Rushmore. it from far away. So okay. it looks small, but when you're standing right up on it, it is wow. massive. This is the side of a mountain. Okay, so just to remind everybody, Stonewall Jackson was the Confederate general who led troops uh, at Antietam, Manassas, and Fredericksburg. General Lee was the commander of the Confederate States Army, and Jefferson Davis was the president of the Confederate States from 1861 to 65. So the Confederate cause was white supremacy, was the maintenance of slavery. That was the Confederate cause. So I know I see a lot of people now trying to divide and say, oh, it's Southern it pride, it's heritage, rights, yeah. it's states' rights. That's that's a distraction. The Confederacy, they were trying to maintain slavery. That, despite all the noise around it, and of course, there are lots of other issues they were trying to uphold, but that was the primary... The root, right, you can say it was states' rights, but it was states' rights about slavery. slavery. It, it's economic. <laughs> well, it was economic about, about slavery. slavery. Right, yeah. so, so th this, is, this, is, this place is a problematic place for a lot of reasons. The intent, the reason it was built was to, the, the reason that the image was carved of these three particular Confederate, shall we say, heroes, was to really uphold and celebrate the Confederacy. And if we remember, Confederacy equals slavery. So therefore, Stone Mountain, the relief monument is basically a celebration of slavery. The KKK to this day still has rallies on the mountaintop. Well, and there was um, in 2016 what they called, the group called themselves pro-white rally. So they called mm -hmm. it a, a pro-white rally um, that they held there. So this is not ancient history. This is a place that people who have given themselves that moniker of pro-white see as an important space to make their argument. 
to That's help right. them congregate a place where they can congregate and make their arguments. That's right. Stonewall Jackson owned slaves, right? So these were slave owners, Confederate leaders, and people who want to maintain that monument. <clears throat> they may not come right out and say that they are in favor of slavery or that they are racist, but that is fundamentally what they are supporting when right. they say that we are okay with this staying where it is without any <laughs> further complication of it. So if you're looking at this monument, it's these images of these three male Confederate heroes, the size of a mountain, bigger than Mount Rushmore. So you have to think about who put it there, right? So the family was participating in the KKK. They paid for it and they had it carved in order to celebrate the Confederacy for all time. So you cannot separate your impression of it now as a modern person looking at it. And I've been there, I've seen it, I've hiked up to the top. It's an impressive place. But you cannot separate your sort of awe about it from the intent and the messaging. <laughs> right, we're meant to be in awe of them and right. what they created. Exactly. And so you're- These three men, I mean. Right. Um, so the audience in this case has a great deal to do with the meaning and the value. So if as, as you know, so what Laurent Dubois is saying, if as a society, what we value is upholding the tenets and philosophy of the Confederacy, then we will have no problem leaving this particular monument in place, untouched, unscathed. Or if our values as a society have changed and we no longer think that the Confederacy was all that in a bag of chips and that maybe we see it now as maybe slightly disrespectful um, to, to, humanity. to humanity, to all of our brothers and sisters of color, black, Native American, um, Asian Americans, people who have immigrated here, we see it as a problematic women, women, a problematic symbol of a power structure that is no longer acceptable as a mainstream idea in America, then you, you can't look at it the same way and you have to say, well, then maybe it has to change, which is why I like what Laurent had said. Well, and I'm sitting here looking at an image right now <laughs> of people walking, of hiking it, carrying Confederate flags. Oh yeah. Um, as you know, and they feel attacked that people are starting to question the validity or the usefulness of this, of this image of this mm -hmm. monument. And so this just seems to prove the point to me, right? That this, that the point that you are making about this, space that I've never I am, didn't even know existed in the United States until today mm -hmm. again so you take the idea of rhetoric is everywhere rhetoric is the art of persuasion so what is this monument trying to persuade you to believe right it's trying to I mean at least for its audience and we want to think about audience as well right because there needs to be an audience in a rhetorical situation um, I'm I feel like I am not the audience for this statue, mainly because I didn't know it existed. It's in the South, and it seems to be that the audience that it's trying to speak to is just speaking to replicate Confederate ideals that don't speak to me in the first place. Right, so even if you and your family were traveling, and you're like, oh, this looks like an interesting place. Let's stop I here. I would be like, what the fuck you are would, we looking at? You would drive up. <laughs> yeah. You would see the plaque that says this is, you know, directing you, this is Jefferson Davis, this is Stonewall Jackson, this is... General Lee, and you, 
as be like oh hell no you understand who they are so you'd be looking at this mountain size relief monument carved into the side of a mountain of these three confederate generals of these three confederate leaders i have a hard time going to mount rushmore there you go like honestly i've been to mount rushmore and i was just like what am i looking at and i know as a quote-unquote good american i'm supposed to like all i see is the lack of diversity and the fact that it's just dudes. That's all I see when I look at Mount Rushmore. Yeah. And so I can't even imagine, like I can just imagine like pulling up to this with my kid in the car, mm-hmm. like traveling through Georgia and be like, oh, why, let's go look at this thing. And then I'd be standing there like, okay, how do I explain who these three people are to my six-year-old? And I would probably end up focusing on the art. Like, wow, imagine what it must have been like to try to make that into a mountain and just maybe even skirt that we're starting to slowly talk about slavery in my household. But how do I explain who these three people are? Because if Mm -hmm. I don't think they're heroic, the cognitive dissonance my six-year-old is going to feel over like, well, why are they in a mountain then? Right. Why did somebody carve them into the side of a mountain? Well, because they valorize them. Right. So it's... When you, whenever you're looking at or thinking about a public statue, a public monument, you have to think about the message, who put it there, who paid for it, what was the intent in the first place, and what is it? What is the message? So what is the message of this monument or statue? What is it trying to get you to see or understand? And I'll talk about, let's flip over to the one in San Francisco. So San Francisco just decided um, to remove Uh, a statue called um, Early Days from its Pioneer Monument. The image is essentially uh, a Native American man dressed in feathers and breechcloth, sort of sitting half laying on the ground with a a male missionary standing over him with one hand um, down looking, like sort of one hand down on him and his other hand pointing to the sky and then behind them both is a another man looks like maybe a settler who's looking out sort of keeping a watch so san francisco decided to remove this monument because it is sort of widely considered to be racist and disrespectful to native americans and degrading to native americans and you Um, can read and i want to just point out that you can read the full public hearing about this it's it's actually really interesting that occurred on December 5th, 2017. They have the entire like research they did, the study, all the work they went through to come to this decision. Because I think sometimes what we see when we see like on the Twitter feed, the statue coming down, we don't realize there's been a whole line of discussion about this. These are not, these are not flip actions. These are not, I mean, there have been people that have taken it down like in a resistance move, but that the, they talked to this out they had all these motions. They did all this research. It has all the original documents of when the statue was commissioned, how much it was for, who commissioned it, uh, and then what they're going to do, which is um, it will be removed and prepared for storage by conservation professionals. And it's one of these five sculptures. So there's others that are staying. So I, I think sometimes we all forget in the heat of the moment that there's this long story that leads up to the moment where something goes away. Right. And this statue in particular, thank you for that. I'm You're glad welcome. that there's, there's all there's that document. There's so much documentation about it. It's fascinating. The reason why this is, is problematic, this statue, and its location in San Francisco, it's, it's not just generically degrading Native Americans. It's specifically, there was a near annihilation of California nations, of California mm-hmm. tribal nations. When the missionaries and the settlers went 
originally to went went to California, the area that is now California, they pretty much wiped out all native peoples. Right. They, I mean, they almost wiped them completely out. Right. And it was violent. It was genocide. And so, legitimately, native peoples and others are looking at this statue and going, "Wait a minute." So this is like this a whitewashing. Is, right. Again, you got two white men. One's a missionary. Very importantly, the persuasion and look at it, the rhetoric of it is a white man standing over a prostrate native man. Right. I mean, the native man doesn't have direction. Is Everybody's looking out, but the native man is looking inward at them. It is, it, it is, it is problematic. So when you look, you might just initially look at this statue and go, oh, I don't see what the big deal. But if you just stop for a minute and you really look at the way the way the statue is designed, you'll see that it's sending a message that is not good for respecting native peoples it's not even it's it's not about equality it's not about it's about subjugation it's about colonization it's about domination it's and when i look at it i see the tripartite imagery i see the threes i feel like it's evoking or suggesting a religious um a religious mm-hmm. uh, imperative mm-hmm. that was often the argument for colonizing people. I feel like even the construction of the statue and the placement of them and the threeness of it, and that the the person, the man is on the Native American is on the ground, mm-hmm. and the other man is standing up right righteously. It just the the I feel like you wouldn't have to look at this for very long mm-hmm. to talk about who is in power in this statue and who is not and who is who is weak and who doesn't have agency and who does. It's very obvious to me. Right. And then, uh, you know, Columbus. Columbus is another problematic figure um, in in our history and in our sort of cultural a milieu when we're talking about Columbus Day and Columbus and you know his genocide and violence against Native Americans, Native peoples. New York City commissioned a panel and that panel decided to remove one of the statues of Columbus. However, it is not the statue that's in Columbus Circle well, in New York City. Never going away. So that's that's the the big Columbus statue in Columbus Circle is the one that Native um, activists are asking to be removed that is not the one that they are removing they're removing a different one it's a smaller one in another part of the city movements are being made but they're not necessarily big enough and just to end this the idea of fighting back against statues and trying to get them removed you know how this all started was the tiki torch nazi march in virginia well the virginia legislature um just basically canceled legislation that would have allowed towns and cities in Virginia to remove those racist statues. So they can't be so removed they can't, now. Right. And something I want So to bring it back around to that, yeah. it's the, this is going through legislative processes and arguments as well as to like, well, if a town decides it doesn't want its statue, can it remove it? And Virginia right. legislature just said no. You so have Virginia to leave it. can't. Right. Can they appeal to the state? I would imagine. I mean, this just happens. So I right. would imagine and, they'll, and there's, there'll be an appeal process. There is a lot. There's so yeah. much going on right now with this. And you had made that nice no. list of things to think about. And one thing I want to add to it is I always ask my students to ask the question, what's missing 
yeah. who's missing yeah you know what what is not here and um so central park has has no statues of women in it there's not a single so there's been a lot I of never realized yeah that i know until you brought it yeah. oh my god so you're right central park doesn't have a single statue <laughs> of a woman now in late 2017 it was announced by the parks department that that is going to change and this was after much badgering like this is not because suddenly they decided oh we need to have one woman in all of central park but they did proclaim in november that the elizabeth katie stanton and susan b anthony women's suffrage Mo movement monument will highlight the need for a history that accurately tells women's stories so it's cool i like elizabeth katie stanton and susan b anthony but again so now okay great i'm really happy there's going to be a statue of women like i'm very happy about that but they're white women and they're the parks department with their statement said along with stan and anthony the monument will honor honor the memory of the many others who worked tirelessly to advance women's rights including sojourner truth lucy stone mary church terrell anna howard shaw and ida b wells barnett so we picked two white ladies and so it's hard to make the argument for feminism when that is what happens but that's not very intersectional. It's not intersectional at all. And so, it, again, feminists find themselves in the, that weird state where you're like, yay, we're finally getting something we asked for. But also, it's just going to reify the lack of diversity in the conversation about suffrage. So also think about when you're looking around statues, who's not being represented? I always think that's a great question to ask. And yeah, so good are they being, inter are it like the ones yeah. you've talked about in a... San Francisco being represented so poorly, right? Mm -hmm. Indigenous peoples being mm -hmm. represented so poorly. But again, you don't see many women in these. Mm -hmm. You know, who who is not being shown? Also, think about that. And yeah, and not just who's not being shown, but how are they being shown? Like exactly. the prostrate native man exactly. who has no agency. There was a statue of Stephen Foster, who was the uh, 19th yeah. century composer in you Pittsburgh. You just brought this one to my attention yep, too. That um, the the city is moving. They're in the. They're right now getting ready to move this statue. And the reason why people have said it's problematic is because there is a picture of the white composer. And seated at his feet is an right. African-American banjo player. Right. So like this minstrelly feel right. to this. It's a very minstrelly feel. So that's a problem because it's not just who is missing, but when they are represented, where are they? So are they standing up? Right. Or are, are they, they looking? The so the, the two marginalized <laughs> populations, the are Native American and the African-American men, they're, they're like both at the bottom of these pedestals, the right? At, at the, the feet, feet of, of white men. White men. <laughs> I mean, um, you yeah. can't get, you talk, because you know, I always talk optics. You can't yeah. get worse optics than that. Yeah. And then, of course, your point is very well taken. Women are missing. So who's missing from the picture? Who's just not even there? Yeah. Who's in, where? Although, frankly, I'd be, rather be missing than be, like, depicted the in these horrible ways. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, it's like a no-win situation. So when you hear people complaining, we need to leave our history alone. We need to leave it. It's not just history. History is something that actually happened. It's present. This is someone's version of a particular moment in history that is being upheld as a celebratory, honored place oh, in our good. public that's good. Yeah. spaces. So if there are absences, who's absent? They are not being honored. They are not being valued. If whatever the image is that's being portrayed is that truly respectful and resonant with us today as modern Americans? 
the chances are the answer is no, especially when it comes to some of these racist Confederate statues and monuments that were placed there very specifically to uphold and celebrate white supremacy and slavery. Well after the Confederate, well, well, well after the after. war, right? Well this after. is more of a, um, yeah. you know, a segregation issue than it was a war history issue. Right. So it was like a reminder. So just like everything we talk about on the show, my friend, it is more complicated than people might would maybe be comfortable with. But it is complicated. It is messy. But I do think that it's important if we're saying that our values are no longer those that are represented by the messaging in some of these monuments and statues, then absolutely things need to change. They need to be removed, changed, adjusted, put in an archivist's file, you know, so that our public spaces actually represent what we as modern Americans truly value and believe. Amen. Amen. I think next time we're walking through a park, we'll be more aware of what we're looking at and we'll be reminded that we are in a rhetorical situation yeah. and that those statues have a rhetorical power. I'm really glad you explained that to us. Like what you're hearing? Become a patron of our podcast and help us be sustainable. Click that little green Become a Patron button on our Podbean page and it'll get you started. But here's the cool news. There are three different patron levels that you can participate in to show your love and support of our hard work for you. A monthly commitment of just $1, which is less than the cost of a cup of coffee, gets you a large, cool, square sticker for your computer with our freshly designed logo, and you can share the love. For $5 a month, you get two stickers, a shout out on Facebook and on the podcast, plus our newest patron level of $8 a month, You'll get all the love and swag of the $1 and $5 levels, but also early access to every episode and expert extra. So join our patron team at this $8 a month level and be in the know before everyone else. All of your donations are greeted with our deepest gratitude. Thanks for keeping us sustainable. Time for Trumpster Fire. Amanda? Yes. We need to talk about Donald Trump and the way he speaks about the press. Again. Okay. Yeah. Let's, because it just keeps getting worse and worse, doesn't it? So this all began with uh, Katie Tour. I don't know if, I know you watch MSNBC, Katie mm-hmm. Tour. I've been, I've been reading her book. And she was, I think, one of the first reporters that Donald Trump started to point out at rallies. She hmm. talks about that, what that experience was, because she was actually one of the first people that was following his campaign. So she oh, she was like right. on the beat before anybody else. Oh, yeah, um, right. And so he started calling her out and it got to the point where security would have to escort her. And she writes paragraphs about how she felt she feels the mood in the room shift when Donald Trump used her to embody his hatred of the MSM, the mainstream media. And she felt in danger. And the Trump campaign actually escorted her out a few times because they also realized that she was in danger of this mob mentality that is that is fostered against journalists at these rallies. And he's still at it. Just over the weekend, he said he called Chuck Todd a sleeping son of a bitch. And he's done this before where he calls out journalists, different journalists, um, accused uh, Megyn Kelly of bleeding and was insinuating that she had her period. 
So he he is he is taking he is attacking singularly these people that are people and that they're doing their jobs. And I feel I feel badly because they all have to like make a joke out of it. Like I know Katie Tour talks about that too. So Chuck Todd released a tweet after this saying, don't miss at meet the press tomorrow. I know folks may be tired in the morning due to springing forward. So set those clocks and DVRs now before your eyes get too sleepy. So they keep having to like absorb this hatred and vitriol that the commander in chief is doling out to the media. And we've talked before on the show about stochastic terror mm-hmm. and about the danger of remarks like that. Mm-hmm. Now, you were watching this yeah. rally. I only read about it, but you were watching no, it. I so watched, tell us about that. So I watched the rally in Pittsburgh where he, when he starts pointing at the yes, line of media in the, tour. In the back of the room, he starts pointing to them and saying, look at them, the lying media, the, the fake news, the people, the people behind him young women, older men, a range of people behind him, all white, holding signs. As soon as he started doing that, their faces got angry. Yes, agreed. They were pointing and and with thumbs down, and they're pointing and yelling as well. Yes. That is the environment. And I saw a tweet from Tom Brokaw this morning about that. Oh, he's writing great stuff about this. And he said something to the effect of, by doing this, by saying this all the time, by pointing out, by talking about lying media, fake media, all this, and, and pointing out at his rallies and, and pointing out the line of, of media that's there, he is creating a dangerous environment, which, of course, I agree with because we talked about this idea of stochastic terror. All you have to do is say, oh, look at them. They're terrible. They're awful. Don't trust them. They're, they're evil. And then somebody in the room is going to hear the dog whistle and go act. But there's no culpability on the person who's stoking the fire using the dog whistle so that's what trump is doing somebody somebody in his support group his his base they are going to start attacking the media they are going to start attacking journalists because that's what they do and let me say say something oh no they won't bullshit i was looking on tom brokaw's tweet and i was scrolling down the thread to see and she's broken the never read the comments rule but the comments are really telling you learn a lot about the world you learn a lot about who people really are and what they think and here are one trump supporter um, that has um, maga in his name Mm -hmm, he wrote no and this is he was talking about how the media has brought this on themselves no you've done that all on your own trump speaks with our voice all caps and we hate you It's us, all caps, not just Trump. You're hated by millions and there's nothing you can do to change it. Don't even try. It will never change. But did that person always feel that way about like the six o'clock news? Or is this because of Donald Trump? This is because of Donald Trump. That he has convinced them through repetition. Yes. If you see these montages Mm -hmm. of the rallies, it's it's Mm -hmm. a call rallying cry at every single rally. And so at some there point, is a the repetition line. works. There is a direct line back to Trump. He is calling, he is saying the same things again and again, so talking to his listeners, his supporters, saying, you can't trust the media. You have to hate them. I hate them. Follow me. Basically, that's what he's saying. And they're falling in lock fucking step. I'm 
really kind of worried for the journalists, you know, out there doing this really hard, important work. And we've talked about this on the podcast before. The state, right? They're like the, they ones are the ones that, that are breaking these right. stories. Right. His supporters are going to go ballistic and start attacking and creating violence on on journalists, and there and he'll well, be. Well, they able, already did, right? That one guy got punched and right. um, got punched I'm just by saying, the. Other. I think it's going to get worse, and yeah. and more to the point. And I know people are going to be rolling their eyes when I say this, but this is true. I've seen this, and it's true. When an authoritarian figure wants to come along, and get full authoritarian power one of the first things they do and you can look back through history for this you don't have to just believe me go look it up authoritarian dictators authoritarian leaders even if they're not dictators one of the first things they do is discredit the press Mm -hmm. that's one of the first moves they make if they can turn the public against the press now they can do anything they want you any they won't then you don't believe any story the press says oh well that's not true that's not true so Brokaw okay. is right. This is a very dangerous environment. People need to take this very seriously. And when, Agreed. You, when you see people talking about how, oh, it's the lying media, fake news, the press. I mean, I, I would go to the point of just reporting them to Twitter. If it's on Twitter, if it's in your Facebook feed, stomp that shit out. Tell them, no, you're wrong. And just have the fight. Usually what I that try is to do is find, right, try to find <laughs> the, the um, primary documents or a primary mm-hmm. speech that they're looking at and just be like, here is what they're reporting on. So here you go. If you think there's another way to think about this and report this, I guess that's fine. But I, I try to deflate um, any of that MSM is lying mm-hmm. to you kind of crap. But the bottom line is, I mean, we we talk about. I don't, you know, I don't want to go like, oh, we're headed to a civil war because I see people even farther left than me saying that. I don't really necessarily believe that, but I do think that this is one of the this is say, dangerous path. One this of the a, yeah. one of the prongs. Of, of places where we have to pay attention and we have to focus and we have to fight back because this rhetoric, this messaging, it's only going to lead dangerous I mean, and he violent called places. A journalist a son of a bitch. Yeah. That's, like, this is not like I question his credibility, right? Like, oh, and, you know, like the, that would be a way to say that, I guess. And, and at the same time, he also made fun of the idea of being presidential. He stood there. He said, look, I'm all presidential. And he stood very mockingly, standing very stiff and looking very uncomfortable. So he was mocking the very concept of being presidential. He's like, you'd be bored if I was presidential. Oh, what God, I want to be bored so bad. Yeah, I want to be too. bored so bad. I, I miss the days of oh, calm. I miss complacency. <laughs> leadership but this is another prong that we have to watch and we have to fight back against it everywhere we do we see it's it. whack-a-mole people you it gotta is. whack it every time and you can't look away because you're gonna lose your tickets i.e democracy if you look away so don't look away don't look away we dedicate ourselves to collective resistance resistance to the billionaire mortgage profiteers and gentrifiers Resistance to the healthcare privateers. As I have said, and as I believe, the advancement of the full participation of women and girls in every aspect of their societies is the great unfinished business of the 21st century. And not just for women, but for everyone, and not just in far away countries, but right here in the United States. Thank you for understanding 
that sometimes we must put our bodies where our beliefs are. Sometimes pressing send is not enough. <laughs> if, if we want to give all of our children a foundation for their dreams and opportunities worthy of their promise, if, if we want to give them that sense of limitless possibility, that belief that here in America, there is always something better out there if you're willing to work for it, then we must work like never before. This episode's Fierce Woman Warrior is Annie Clark and Andrea Pino. They protect perpetrators because they have a financial incentive to do so. The problem of sexual assault on campuses is enormous. I think it's fair to say that they cover these crimes up. There's a lot of victim blaming. He lectured us about how we shouldn't go out in short skirts. They told me, despite the fact that I had a written admission of guilt, that what I presented to them could only prove that he loved me. They discourage them from going to the police. If it goes to the police, then it's more likely to end up as a public record. Universities are protecting a brand. These two women were profiled in the film The Hunting Ground. In the film, we watch Clark and Pino join a group of students that filed a federal complaint against UNC at Chapel Hill in 2013, beginning the wave of investigations by the federal government of more than 160 schools. Clark and Pino founded End Rape on Campus and co-edited the collection We Believe You, Survivors of Campus Sexual Assault Speak Out, giving voice to survivors all across the nation. The two are leaders in a movement that is working to end sexual assault on campuses. But until then, they also do the important work of supporting survivors emotionally while forging legal paths for recourse. Let's take a time out for a Media Minute. Watch the documentary, The Art of Persuasion, streaming free on DocumentaryMania.com to learn how politicians use images, art, and powerful visual techniques to persuade us of their credibility, communicate their power, and convince us of their trustworthiness. Where do those techniques come from? I'll give you a hint. These persuasive techniques are thousands of years old. The past is present. A monument is not just a monument. And every visual used by our leaders is chosen purposefully to play with our values. Watch this 58-minute documentary to learn how these ancient techniques are used to manipulate what you think and how you act. You may be surprised to learn that your thoughts and actions are not just your own. Once you understand how visual imagery is used by politicians, by statue builders, by anyone trying to convince you of something, you will be a more savvy voter and a wiser consumer of your newsfeed. Let's end today's podcast with some activist actions. Read We Believe You and learn how to believe survivors when they disclose assault to you. Unless you are a crisis counselor or healthcare provider, you have one job, listening. I know you want to do more to help, but you need to listen so you can help your friends find support and medical assistance. Your heart is in the right place when you believe your friend, 
but you are not equipped to do more. If your friend went into diabetic shock, you wouldn't think you could solve the issue for them. You would know to ask for help. Same goes with a friend that has been assaulted. Make sure they are safe and seek out support if your friend consents to seek resources. Be in the know. What is your county's rape crisis center? What medical assistance is available in your area? Where can you get plan B? Having thought about these questions prepares you to be of assistance to your friends when they need you. Thanks for spending time with us inside 254. You can find us a lot of places online. On Facebook, we're at Inside 254 Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Inside 254 Pod. On Instagram, we are at Inside 254. And on WordPress, where we post links and places that you can go to donate or learn more about our activist actions, we're at Inside254Site, S-I-T-E dot WordPress dot com. You can find our free episodes on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play Music, and you can also just Google us. There are two things you can do to help us build audience today. You can go onto Facebook, click one of those stars, and leave a comment as feedback, And then you can go to your listening platform and rate us on there as well. By doing those two things, that's going to get our word out and help us build our audience. Thank you for helping us grow.